Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today, making his third appearance on the program, is Alan C. Gelzo. He is the Senior Research Scholar in the Council of the Humanities at Princeton University and Director of the James Madison Program's Initiative on Politics and Statesmanship. He is the world's leading authority on Abraham Lincoln and the author of many excellent books on Lincoln and the Civil War, including Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, and Gettysburg, The Last Invasion. Today, Dr. Gelzo joins us for a special Independence Day episode to discuss the political philosophy of the Declaration of Independence, what the Declaration meant to Abraham Lincoln, and what, in turn, the Declaration should mean to us all these years later. Alan Gelzo, welcome back to Madison's Notes. Thank you, Nino. And I would say only by way of qualifying your introduction that I'm just a person who's written some stuff about Lincoln. <laughs> well, as our listeners will be reminded, that, that certainly sells yourself short. But here we go. On this podcast, we like to start at the beginning of things, and it seems to be working well for us. So we'll stick with it and travel back to 1776. Help us put this occasion in the Declaration of Independence in context. Were declarations of independence like this common, or is the American Declaration of Independence unique in the history of mankind? Well, the answer to that is a definite, unqualified yes and no. <laughs> um, a declaration in legal terms, and, and mind you, when you're talking about the Continental Congress, you really are talking about a collection of a lot of people who were lawyers. And of course, the Declaration of Independence is written by someone who is a lawyer, Thomas Jefferson. So what did the word mean in 1776 when you, when you put at the head of something, a declaration? Well, very simply, legally speaking, a declaration is a simple statement of affairs. It's an attempt to lay out what the situation is, then you conclude it with some kind of statement or demand, in this case, for relief. In a way, the declaration is what you start out with in a civil lawsuit. You're stating the situation, and then you are saying this is what needs to happen as a result of that in order to satisfy whatever problems have been created and described in the body of the Declaration of itself. So if you want to put it in a few words, a declaration is simply a statement of affairs followed by a demand for relief. Now, that's the lawyer's short definition of it. Historically speaking, Declarations have got a, a long history. It was no surprise at all that in 1776, the Continental Congress is going to issue something called a Declaration of Independence. You might say that in, and I'm going to limit myself to, to Anglo-American jurisprudence here. You, you might say that the first declaration that way, really, in, in terms of law and politics, is Magna Carta. Mm. So we really go back to 1215, and we're talking about that as the original model of a declaration. 
But move closer to the events of 1776 and in the 17th century, you find in the time of the English Revolution, uh, you find the 1641 Grand Remonstrance. Uh, this is a, it's not using the word declaration, but it has all the shape and character of a declaration. And it's a remonstration against the high handedness of the king's government, in this case, King Charles I. And this is what, adopt, what is adopted in Parliament. So the 1641 Grand Remonstrance, you might say, is a great grandfather of our Declaration of Independence. And that's followed all through the 17th and 18th century with other kinds of declarations. In 1652, there's the Declaration of the Commoners of England. Uh, this was a protest. Uh, you might say it's a protest by the same people or some of the same people uh, that were behind the 1641 remonstrance. Uh, now that they've gotten rid of the king, Charles I, are complaining that they've been sold out by Oliver Cromwell because the Declaration of the Commoners of England is basically it's a protest of Cromwell's assumption of a protectorate, becoming Lord Protector of, of England. And their feeling was, look, we got rid of the king. Uh, why are we now making you a quasi-king? So 1652, Declaration of the Commoners of England. There's another one. In 1687, uh, the king is more or less compelled. This is now the restored Stuart monarchy. Uh, is more or less compelled to issue um, a declaration of religious toleration called the Declaration of Indulgence. That's 1687. Uh, that's followed in 1688 when Parliament issues the Declaration of Right, overthrowing the Stuart monarchy and uh, inviting uh, William and Mary uh, to assume uh, the monarchy of England. Uh, closer to home, uh, Americans, when they begin to feel the difficulties that they are having with Great Britain, what comes out? <laughs> well, declarations are flying out right and left. Uh, the time of the Stamp Act, uh, the Stamp Act Congress in 1765 issues a Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as we get even closer to the outbreak of, of outright revolution uh, in 1774, uh, the First Continental Congress adopts a declaration and resolves of that First Continental Congress uh, across uh, the 13 colonies. There are efforts to compose declarations. In North Carolina, for instance, uh, there's the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence in 1775, which a lot of people, because of, it, of its very strenuously anti-British uh, resolutions. Many people have, have looked at the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence as a kind of declaration of independence before the Jeffersonian fact. And then in 1776 itself, uh, George Mason composes the Virginia Declaration of Rights. In This is in June of 1776, so we're getting very close to the event. And if you read the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the very first section uh, simply jumps out at uh, you with uh, echoes and allusions of what will be uh, Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Hmm. The Virginia Declaration says that all men are by nature equally free and independent and have certain, certain inherent rights hmm. uh, of which when they enter into a state of society, they cannot divest their posterity, namely the enjoyment of life 
and liberty, possessing property, and obtaining happiness and safety. That's the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And that really is, uh, it's less than a month before the Continental Congress adopts the document that Thomas Jefferson composes. And Jefferson pulls on the language of the Virginia Declaration and also of the draft constitution, the preamble of the draft constitution he wrote for Virginia. So there's a, there's a very lengthy uh, genealogy, shall we say, for the Declaration of Independence. When Jefferson sets down to compose this Declaration of Independence, calling it a declaration is absolutely no surprise. It's no break with tradition. It's right solidly within this long historical line of declarations that are issued when people have a change of affairs that they are going to initiate connected with that legal demand for relief that we associate with any kind of legal declaration. So you gave us an unqualified yes and no. It's unique yes and no. That's the no right. In what ways is it unique? Well, that that in itself uh, probably is a question that should be answered by saying no, even then it's not really unique because it contains a preamble which sets out the state of things and then goes into a very long list of problems in the American environment. And then it comes up with a demand for relief. So even, even in that respect, even in its structure, the answer is still no, it's not unique. What is unique in the long history of declarations is how philosophical the preamble is. That's right. uh, the preamble does not really say, we are having a hard time reconciling the behavior of parliament and the king with what has been our experience in the past and what we understand to be the proper structure of things under English common law. No, actually, it doesn't say any of that. There's, there's no reference, in fact, no appeal to English common law at all in the Declaration of Independence. The preamble starts with a, a frankly philosophical statement. Yeah. And it is a philosophical statement uh, very much in the spirit of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment political theory, and owes a great deal to a variety of thinkers uh, that we associate with the Enlightenment, to John Locke, to uh, the Baron Montesquieu, uh, to Cesare Beccaria, uh, and any number of other Enlightenment uh, political writers. So there's the yes, there's where it's different from a lot of these other declarations. The preamble is a remarkably philosophical statement. Uh, the Virginia Declaration of Rights also has a certain aspect of that. So even when we talk about the uniqueness of the Declaration's preamble, even that has roots, even that has genealogy. But I would have to say, if we're really looking very hard for what makes our Declaration of Independence unique, it is in that preamble, because most of these other declarations do not go into long philosophical uh, descriptions of what the basis of political order should be, but our declaration does. Most Americans are familiar with the following. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, if my math is right, that sentence takes up less than 1% of the declaration. So when we look at the Declaration, what else should we be paying attention to? 
Well, that depends. If you're a historian, you want to pay attention to every jot and tittle of it. <laughs> all of it has uh, something interesting to say, because all of it's talking about the particular situations and challenges that Americans were facing in 1776 and the, the grievances and aggravations that had driven them to take this remarkable step. And it was a remarkable step. Um, they had been until the 1760s, these 13 colonies, I mean, uh, part of the larger context of the British Empire. They considered themselves to be Englishmen. They spoke of themselves as possessing the rights of Englishmen. Even as late as the 1750s, if you're reading something like William Livingston's Independent Reflector in New York City, now there's a constant reaffirmation and without any self-consciousness that what the colonists are are basically extensions of Great Britain. So they understand themselves in that way. Suddenly this has begun to change. The ground has begun to shift out from under everyone's feet. And now you see an accumulation of resentments about British imperial policy. And those resentments those, and the conflicts that emerge from those resentments multiply to the point where you now have a comparatively long document itemizing a lot of problems that people have with the British government. Some of them are substantial problems. Some of them are somewhat ginned up, somewhat exaggerated, but taken together, what every one of them has as its common thread is this. This isn't the way we've done things before. Someone in Britain, now whether it's parliament, whether it's the imperial bureaucracy, whether it's the king himself. Someone in Great Britain is trying to rewrite the rules by which the relationship of the colonies to Great Britain has always been understood to function. And we do not like that. We have always done things in this other way. And we're now giving you this long list of the ways in which the British government has set that at naught. And we suspect set it at naught with malevolent purpose. The mm. malevolent purpose being to reduce us to some kind of subordination to Britain, which it simply has not been our experience to enjoy before this. In a little, we'll turn to the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution. But, but first, let me ask you this. Does the Declaration prescribe or proscribe? Does it recommend or forbid? any particular form of government? No, no. But, and I rush to insert the button, <laughs> but there is a strong anti-monarchical presumption in that preamble. If you are looking to tease a form of government out of the preamble, monarchy is not what you will get. Hmm. When it says that all men are created equal, and enjoy certain natural rights equally, that stands entirely against notions of hierarchy. And what else is monarchy built upon but notions of hierarchy? Yeah. And when I say hierarchy, what I mean is hierarchy not only in terms of structure, but function. Hierarchy and hierarchical organizations of society had, from time out of mind, understood human society to be ordered and ranked in a certain way. I mean, in a way, it's, it's, it's a very Aristotelian way of thinking of, of human society. But it begins at the top with the king or the, or, or the monarchy, 
And it proceeds down through the ranks of the nobility and finally comes down to the commoners. And maybe there's even in some societies a level of helots or serfs or slaves below the commoners. But it's hierarchical. And within that hierarchy, everybody owes something to everybody else. It's a, it's a mutually reinforcing uh, affair. But authority or sovereignty in that hierarchy clearly flows from the top downwards. Sovereignty belongs with the king, and the king then shares it, bestows it, or in some, by whatever other mechanism it's been arranged, uh, enjoys it with the other uh, elements of society, the other levels of the hierarchy. But it's, a, but it's a downward moving notion of sovereignty. Now, look at the preamble to the declaration. All right, it doesn't perform, prescribe a, a form of government. And, and in a sense, you know, monarchy could survive. You, you could have a monarchy after you talk about the preamble to the Declaration, but it would only be a figurehead monarchy. It would be nothing more than it would be a it would be a monarchy for the, basically for the entertainment of the tourists, which is mostly what the British monarchy has become today. So monarchy could survive, but it's very unlikely. There's a strong anti-monarchical drift that's built into those particular words. And if you unpack the phrases themselves as you go through that preamble, it actually, it actually gets worse for, for monarchy and hierarchy. Because look, look what the preamble uh, says uh, in addition to this, the whole business about being created equal and enjoying certain natural rights. Um, it, the preamble says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And they derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Oh, there's a whopper of a statement right there that in order to secure natural rights, that's how governments are instituted. In other words, governments are not handed down from God in heaven on a silver platter. Human beings create governments. Mm -hmm. Governments are a, a perfectly human institution and they're instituted not because uh, hierarchy requires it, uh, they're instituted uh, so that human beings uh, can better enjoy their natural rights. So any government which is going to have any kind of legitimacy, uh, those just powers the preamble talks about, always has to depend on the consent of the governed. So right away, here's a basic principle that emerges out of the, out of the preamble in terms of politics. Consent is the basics of government. Now, again, it's not saying we're prescribing a certain form of government, but it is laying out the bases for a kind of government that has nothing to do with hierarchy or monarchy. So consent, that's the first thing. Then revolution. Revolutions is a viable alternative when things don't end well. Uh, the, the preamble says, whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Mm -hmm. I mean, none of this idea that the king somehow was handed down from heaven or that the king uh, walks around with a halo around his head. And believe me, there were people who talked about kings that way. At, after the execution of King Charles I in, uh, in, in, in the English Revolution, a pamphlet, actually a rather large size pamphlet, a book, Icon Basilicae, the image of the king, portrayed the martyred Charles I 
uh, as though he was uh, a representative of sainthood and in immediate communication with God all the time. No, I mean, this idea that you, the right, the people have the right to alter or abolish their government and institute new ones just marches in a 180 degree direction away from that. Yeah. And, and what they do is people can revise, people can revolt, people can alter, people can abolish. And why, why do they do that? What will justify that? whatever seems most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Hmm. Well, if that's not a shot to the jaw of monarchy, I don't know what is. And then when it says that the people have the right to alter or abolish it and institute new government, it's their right. It's the, it actually says it's their duty yeah. to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. Sovereignty doesn't start at the top of the hierarchy and come trickling down from from the king. Sovereignty belongs with the people. And sovereignty gets delegated by the people upwards to those whom they designate as their rulers or government or what have you. So sovereignty resides in the people at large. And above all, rights. This is, I guess I'm up to number four now. Consent, revolution, sovereignty. All right, number four. Rights are natural possession. They're not the gift of the government. The government doesn't sit there and say, you have the right to this, that, and the other. No. Rights are a natural possession of every human being. Rights are hardwired into you just by virtue of the fact that you're born, that you're a human being. They are endowed by their creator with certain natural rights by their creator. And they can assume on that basis, the separate and equal station which Jefferson says, the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. These are inalienable rights. They are life. They are liberty. They are the pursuit of happiness. So you look at that preamble, and short as the preamble is, it's easily memorizable, believe me. You look at the, that preamble, and so much is packed in there. Consent, right to revolution, sovereignty, uh, rights as a natural possession. That that doesn't spell out a form of government, but it does make a number of forms of government, tyranny, despotism, oligarchy, it makes them impossible. Sticking with the preamble for a moment, American conservatives cite the Declaration's claim that all men are created equal. So too do American progressives, and they cite the same in the name of equity. What's the difference between equality and equity. What did the founding fathers mean by equality when they wrote that all men are created equal? Well, let's, let's start with equity, because equity is a term that people tend to be less familiar with. Equity is about results. It's a legal term. Hmm. It's a, you could call it a subgenre of law. And it's a subgenre where you try to redress results that come from the regular application of common law or statute law, but which turn out to be patently unfair. Right? You're, you're applying the letter of the law, but you're finding out that the result is somewhere far removed from the spirit of the law. So what equity tries to do is, is to correct those moments when the letter of the law gets out of line with the spirit of the law. And that's what equity jurisprudence 
uh, is really about. Usually matters of equity have historically been resolved in a separate court from common law courts. Uh, a court usually called the court of chancery, which is presided over by a chancellor. That's where we get the term chancellor. And chancery courts or equity courts, they basically, they exist to, to, to ameliorate the results of applications of the law that are too strict or too narrow or too unimaginative, or just don't take into account uh, the, the variety of circumstances. And a lot of it is really based on common sense procedures. Mm -hmm. um, the first American textbook on this subject was written by, by a great American lawyer and Supreme Court Justice, uh, Joseph Story, uh, who wrote the textbook, the first American textbook on equity jurisprudence, a uh, textbook which Lincoln read and recommended to others. Uh, in fact, in a number of cases, uh, a number of the American states actually created dual systems of courts for equity and then for regular common law or statute law applications. Uh, today, fewer states actually have separate equity jurisdictions. I do not know off the top of my head how many states may still do that. Uh, at least until recent time, I think the number had come down to about four or five states. In one sense, progressives are using the term equity properly because progressives are looking at how applications of law in the past have produced results which are really violations of the spirit of the law. Mm. I mean, things like Jim Crow, for instance. Sure. Uh, Jim Crow was statute law. But Jim Crow, what, my goodness, this trampled right across uh, everything that American law and American jurisprudence was supposed to be about. Yeah. And even more, even more recently, a redlining of various sorts. I mean, these were all ways of, of, of destroying the real operation of the spirit of the law. And so what progressives are pleading when, uh, many progressives are pleading when they appeal to equity is that results of those kinds of, of faulty laws or the faulty application of laws, they're pleading these should be corrected as a matter of equity. Mm. And, and that's a legitimate use of the term. But there is another sense. And this is what has most recently entered into uh, popular jargon. There is another sense in which the term equity is being pressed into use as a metaphor. And a metaphor, in this case, for authoritarian settlements of long-standing historical problems. And an example of this is reparations for slavery. So equity now is being used metaphorically. It's being expanded as a kind of gigantic historical settlement. You know, it verges almost on overtones of revenge. Uh, it's becoming a synonym for various forms of social redistribution. And that's where the term equity begins to lose any kind of historical connection to what equity has been in the past and what equity really means in law. By contrast, equality is about equality of standing. Equality is about where you begin, and it really has two aspects. 
Equality is what you possess as a starting point. Uh, everybody possesses certain natural rights and possesses them in equal quantities with everyone else. Hmm. And the purpose of law is to treat everyone on that basis. The purpose of law is to give everyone the broadest opportunity to exercise those natural rights in whatever way they are able to exercise them. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone comes out with the same results. Some people are gonna exercise those natural rights and they're gonna have one set of results. Some are gonna have a different set of results. And sometimes it's going to be simply because of the individuals themselves. Sometimes it's going to be because of circumstances and sometimes it will. Sometimes frustrating that will be a result of malice and that is where equity jurisdiction has to come to the rescue. But basically what equality is talking about is first of all, starting out on an equal basis. Um, results is really what equity addresses. And this is different. And this is the second aspect of equality. I think it's important to stress. Equality is not about absolute egal egalitarianism. Right. Absolute egalitarianism is a philosophical pose, which makes everybody equal in every respect at all times. And it's the kind of thing that at first, it sounds like a very ambitious and marvelous aspiration, but the more you think about it, you realize it's actually terribly anti-humane. And one really interesting example of how this can get pushed when, when equality is reduced to egalitarianism is in a short story by, of all people in the world, Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. A short story called Harrison Bergeron, which he published in 1961. And it's, it's really something of a satirical farce about a society in the year 2081 in which everybody is, is compelled to be equal. So that, for instance, uh, athletes who can run fast have to walk around wearing weights around their, around their shoes to slow them down so that they are of an equal speed with everybody else, that's absolute egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And when you try to take equality and press it in that direction, then you're really not talking about equality at all. You're not even talking about equity. Uh, you're talking about what really amounts to a kind of authoritarian despotism. So we've been talking about the declaration. Let's turn out to what the declaration means to one man and a man you know better than just about anyone else. And that's Abraham Lincoln. The great emancipator once said he never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Could you say a word about why the Declaration was so important to Abraham Lincoln and how it helped him develop and how it informed his political beliefs? Lincoln once said, this was in the spring of 1864, I have always been anti-slavery. Uh, I can never remember a time when I have not been, when I've always been opposed to slavery. And I don't think there's any reason to, to doubt that. Uh, Lincoln did not have a great deal to say on the subject of slavery until the 18, well, the end of the 1840s into the 1850s. But the major reason why he didn't have terribly much to say about slavery was, A, he was living in a free state, state of mm -hmm. Illinois, 
And B, and this is much more important, it's because he believed that slavery was something which had been wished upon the American Republic by its British colonizers, mm. but which was given the triumph of the spirit of the Declaration of Independence, something which was gradually fading away, which was, as he put it, on the path to ultimate extinction. So he doesn't really have terribly much to say on the subject of slavery before that point. That changes. It changes in the wake of the Mexican War. It changes in the wake of the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Suddenly, he has to move into a public position of opposing slavery. And what is the basis on which he's going to do it? What is the authority he's going to cite for opposing slavery? Well, the authority he's going to cite is the Declaration of Independence. And he's going to cite the Declaration of Independence because the Declaration of Independence gives him access to an idea of natural law and natural rights that simply can't be confuted in any legitimate American environment. If Americans are Americans, then the Declaration of Independence is their sacred document. Lincoln will appeal to the Declaration because the Declaration gives him the weapon, the prime weapon, natural rights, natural equality, with which to underscore that slavery is not just inconvenient, it is actually morally wrong. It is morally offensive. It is an offense against natural law. The Declaration is his, his conduit to be able to cite that authority. And that's an authority he's going to, re, to appeal to over and over and over again through the 1850s and into his presidency. Now, as I say, for that, it's exactly for that reason, though, that up until that point, he believed that slavery was simply a relic of uh, the ancient past that was uh, slowly uh, wearing away. Uh, he doesn't really talk about the Declaration very much uh, before 1850. In fact, the very first time he really cites the Declaration in a serious way is in a memorial address he delivers after the death of Henry Clay, uh, the man whom he regarded as his beau ideal of a statesman. And in that memorial address in 1852, first of all, he cites the fact that Henry Clay was born in 1776. And he says, well, that's the same year as the American Revolution begins, the same year as the Declaration. Clay and American independence are born together. But he goes on from that to cite what he believes are Clay's beliefs about slavery and about the Declaration. And Lincoln says, if I could... If I could array his name, his opinions, his influence against slavery, against those who, for the sake of perpetuating slavery, are beginning to assail and to ridicule the charter of freedom, the declaration that all men are created free and equal. I mean, that for him, he, if, if there's one thing he wants to cite Henry Clay for, it's Clay's belief that the Declaration of Independence is that charter of freedom. Mm. He, is, he is provoked in this respect, provoked by one particular individual, and he cites him in this Clay eulogy, and that's John C. Calhoun. Uh, Calhoun, the great pro-slavery, uh, Adivar from South Carolina. Calhoun had dismissed the idea 
of of all men being created equal. Um, Calhoun's opinion of the Declaration of Independence was that it was purely an incidental document uh, of uh, of the 1770s and had no uh, long term application to human society. Mm-hmm. Lincoln is really provoked by that. He says the theory of our government is universal freedom. All men are created free and equal, says the Declaration of Independence. Slavery is not found in then he goes and talks about the Constitution. But again, he's referring to the Declaration of Independence. Two years later, in the speeches that he gives uh, in opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act and Stephen A. Douglas, uh, he will start off by talking in, in Springfield uh, about how the Declaration of Independence is this theory of universal freedom. And in it, he says, we have to wash our garments in the blood of the revolution. Our garments, our political garments have become soiled by slavery. We've got to wash our garments in the blood of the revolution because slavery is forcing, he said, he's forcing many really good men into an open war with what he calls the very fundamental principles of civil liberty. And then he, then he, explains what he means by that, criticizing the Declaration of Independence. And then throughout the great debates with Douglas in 1858, he appeals over and over and over again to the Declaration. There's a great moment in July of 1858 when he speaks to Americans as he finds them in 1858. He says, look, fully half the people of this country have come from someplace else or else the the, the children of people who have come from someplace else. They don't have any living memory of the American Revolution. They weren't here at the time of the Revolution. They didn't have anybody here at the time of the Revolution. But, he says, show them that Declaration of Independence. Show them those words that all men are created equal. And he says, they read those and they immediately feel that they are bone of the bone and flesh of the flesh of those old men that wrote the declaration. And so they are. doesn't matter whether they came from Scandinavia, Germany, England, from, from wherever. They look at that because those words in the Declaration of Independence are the electric cord of liberty that resonates in everyone. Hmm. And then, of course, there's the, the quote that, that you used uh, from the speech he gives in Independence Hall on February 22nd, uh, Washington's birthday, 1861. He's on his way to Washington for his inauguration. And, And he says very plainly, all the political sentiments that I've ever had uh, originate from what was given to the world in this hall in 1776. I've never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, the newspaper reporters at that point inserted great cheering in parentheses. (laughs) And he he goes on to say, I've often pondered over the dangers which were run by the Continental Congress when they adopted the Declaration of Independence. He said, I've thought about all the toils that were endured by the officers and soldiers of the Continental Army. And I've asked myself, what was the idea that brought them to do this? It wasn't, he said, just the mere matter of the separation of the colonies from the motherland. That that wasn't the revolution. The revolution was not just about, we wanna be different from Great Britain. Rather, 
what made the American Revolution, what made the soldiers of the Continental Army endure the sufferings and toils that they endured, was that declaration giving liberty, not alone to the people of this country, but hope to the world for all future time. Mm. I mean, and when he says that, by the way, he's actually paraphrasing Henry Clay there in a speech that Henry Clay gave in, in 1850. Huh. And Lincoln says, it's that promise, that promise that in due time, the weights should be lifted from the shoulders of all men. That's his notion of equality, not equity, not egalitarianism, that the weights should be lifted from the shoulders of all, that all should have an equal chance. That, he said, that is the sentiment embodied in the Declaration of Independence. Mm. And then, of course, from there, he will go on. That will become the, the text, so to speak, that he preaches from in the Gettysburg Address when okay. he says, you know, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. For him, the declaration, the declaration is the pole star by which he guides his political ship and which he believes that's the pole star by which the American Republic guides its political ship. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, you are the nation, you are the world's leading authority on Abraham Lincoln. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about another great authority on Abraham Lincoln since past, and that's Harry Jaffa, the great American political philosopher, scholar of Lincoln's political philosophy, the American founding, and much else. He was also a friend of yours, and you were a frequent recipient of his infamous late night phone calls. <laughs> Indeed. And, and uh, in 2018, uh, you wrote a beautiful essay for the Claremont Review of Books titled Harry and Me, Harry Jaffa's Lasting Influence. At the end of this essay, you enumerate a series of questions you say you wish you could have asked, but as you write, quote, I sit beside the phone realizing that the answers must come from myself, end quote. Now, a few of those questions are especially relevant to our conversation today, so I'd like to pose them to you here. And as promised, we'll start with the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution. So here's your own question, originally meant for Harry Jaffa. Quote, what about the Constitution? What is its relation to the Declaration? Is it, as Lincoln said, like the picture of silver and the apple of gold? Is it a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document? End quote. Harry did not answer that particular question in his writings. He focused tremendously on Lincoln as a teacher, a promoter, an expositor of the Declaration of Independence, but he never, never quite put his finger on what he believed to be Lincoln's understanding of the relationship between the Declaration and the Constitution. The Declaration and the Constitution are two obviously very different documents. The Declaration is a statement, and in some respects, an aspiration hmm. of what the colonists wanted to do. The Constitution is an instrument of government, hmm. entirely different kind of document. There's precious little in the way of political philosophy 
uh, in the Constitution. It's a very nuts and bolts document. Even its preamble, which is probably its most philosophical moment, thanks to Gubernur Morris, uh, even, even its preamble does not have the reach, the intellectual uh, grasp, uh, let's say, of the preamble to the declaration. But this is because these are two different documents which have due to two different kinds of work to do. Mm. Uh, one is a declaration, small d. The other is a constitution. It is an instrument of government. So in some respects, we really should be careful about asking what a relationship is between the two, because the two, of course, never understood themselves to be in a relationship. Mm. When the declaration is adopted in 1776, no one is thinking about the constitution. That's not going to happen for another decade. And the Constitutional Convention is very unusual. The Constitutional Convention, in all of its discussion, seems to have very little reference, if any, to the Declaration of Independence. And that's because they've got a different job to do. And yet, Lincoln believed that the two really did have a relationship. I mean, in some respects, he had to believe that because there were many people who had argued, and I mentioned John Calhoun, but Calhoun was only the first in a long string of pro-slavery advocates who made this kind of argument. There were people who wanted to argue that the Declaration and the Constitution were not just different documents, but in fact, belonged to wholly different and separate categories and eras that the Declaration was a document for the 1770s and had no more relevance beyond that, whereas the only document that Americans really needed to pay attention to was the Constitution. This would be a little bit like, like appealing to a definition of human beings as having a body but no soul. Hmm. For Lincoln, the Constitution and the Declaration are more like that body-soul relationship. The Constitution is the physical manifestation. It is about how government should operate, in this case, the national government. But it is risky, as far as Lincoln is concerned, to separate it from the Declaration, because the Declaration, you might say, is the soul which inhabits the Constitution. Apart from that, the Constitution is simply another governing document like any other kind of set of municipal ordinances and has no more intrinsic authority or interest than that. But as soon as you see that the Constitution dovetails with the principles of the Declaration, then suddenly what you see working here is a moment in which the Declaration, especially in the preamble, sets out the spirit, the soul, the intentions of the American experiment. And the Constitution then seeks to build around it the structures that will allow Americans to most easily and most readily realize, hmm. bring into practical life and operation those aspirations that are articulated in the Declaration. That's why Lincoln uses this, this image borrowed from the Book of Proverbs about a picture of silver and an apple of gold. The image seems to have been suggested to him by a letter from a Georgian, Alexander Stevens, who back in earlier days had been a fellow Whig congressman with Lincoln. Uh, this was in the late 1840s. 
And Stevens and Lincoln seem to have gotten along very well. Lincoln once said that he heard a speech from Stevens uh, that just made him weep uh, for its eloquence. And Stevens had for a long time as, as a Southern moderate been resistant to the idea of secession. During the secession winter, Stevens writes to Lincoln and says, you should really, now that you've been elected president, you're the president-elect, you should, you should make some kind of public statement which is going to calm the frenzy that has been stirred up by the secessionists. And, and Lincoln's response at first is, well, there's nothing that I could say at this point as president-elect that would really have any authority, so I'm probably better off saying nothing. But something in Stevens's letter lodged in his mind because Stephen said, a word from you now would be like an apple of gold in a picture of silver. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's, of course, he's drawing, and Stevens is drawing that from the phrase in the book of Proverbs, that a word fitly spoken yeah. is like an apple of gold in a picture of silver. And Stevens is exhorting Lincoln, say something publicly, because if you would say something publicly, it would be that word fitly spoken. Mm. Well, Lincoln won't take Stevens up on that. He's trying to be very cautious about what he's saying. But that image of the picture of silver and the apple of gold really sticks in his mind. And he later writes a memorandum in which he talks about the relationship of the Declaration and the Constitution and the Union. And he says that the Declaration of Independence is the apple of gold. The Constitution and the Union are the picture of silver. In other words, the two work in tandem. You can't separate them. You can't say that the Declaration was just the work of a handful of 18th century uh, colonial lawyers, planters, and whatnot, and is only relevant to their times. No, no, the, the Declaration of Independence is an apple of gold constitution has a relationship to it it's the constitution doesn't exist in a separate realm in a separate sphere rather the constitution is a frame around the apple of gold it is a picture of silver around this apple of gold now that meant for lincoln that when you ask a question about the constitution is the constitution a pro-slavery or an anti-slavery document this allows Lincoln to insist resolutely that the Constitution is an anti-slavery document. Uh, months before he wrote that memorandum, he gave a major address, the address which really goes a long way towards boosting him to the presidential nomination. It's the, the address he delivers at the Cooper Institute on February 27th, 1860. And in that, he, he talks about the Constitution resolutely as a pro-slavery document. He says the, the people who wrote the Constitution look at how they voted in the subsequent Congresses created by the Constitution. They're always voting to limit slavery. Look at the Constitution itself. The Constitution doesn't even use the word slavery. And here he's thinking of Madison's comment during the Constitutional Convention, that the word slavery shouldn't even appear in the Constitution because there should be no hint that the Constitution gives sanction to the idea of property in men. Mm. So for, for Lincoln, making that connection between the apple of gold and the picture of silver is his way of answering the question about the status of the Constitution. For him, it is unquestionably an anti-slavery document 
not simply because of its provisions, not simply because it avoids using the word slave or slavery, but because it is fitted like the pieces of a puzzle. It is fitted together with the declaration whose content, certainly in the preamble, is unquestionably and unarguably militating against slavery. This is what drove Frederick Douglass, who originally had been, uh, along with some of the most radical abolitionists of the day, of the opinion that the Constitution, in fact, sanctioned slavery. And by the early 1850s, Douglass has undergone a change of opinion that way. And Douglass will declare the Constitution to be a glorious liberty document. And that, moreover, is, is a viewpoint which most recently has been uh, articulated and defended uh, by, uh, by our Princeton colleague, uh, Sean Wilentz, in his book, No Property in Men, uh, also by James Oakes in his The Crooked Path to Abolition. So we are understanding now more and more the relationship that Lincoln saw between the apple of gold and the picture of silver. And we're understanding that Lincoln, by using that analogy, was by no means uh, stretching an analogy. He was describing what the actual relationship of the two documents was. A second question for you, again, originally meant for Harry Jaffa. Now we have you here to answer it. As listeners are aware, the Declaration of Independence says that among our unalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So here's that second question. Quote, what are the natural rights? Yes, they begin with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as Jefferson wrote, but do they include property? And if so, what else? I don't want to speak for Thomas Jefferson, much less for, for Harry Jaffa. But it is interesting that Jefferson, when he enumerates these inalienable rights, life liberty, the pursuit of happiness, but he says they are among others. What are those others? What are the natural rights? And that is not an easy question to answer, certainly for a lot of political philosophers in the Enlightenment. The right to property was a natural right too. I mean, this is certainly what emerges from John Locke's two treatises on government. Property is a natural right because when you mix the ground with your labor, if he's thinking basically here of agriculture, what you are doing is you're converting that into property. Property then becomes a natural right. But are there natural rights beyond those? And, and what is this business about happiness being a natural right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about happiness today, we tend to think, well, happiness is when you are in your happy place and you feel good. So does that mean that the declaration is saying we all have a natural right to feel good? No, no, we don't. Um, in, in the 18th century, happiness meant something very different. And in large measure for Lincoln, what happiness means is access to self-transformation. Hmm. Happiness means that whatever your starting place in life, uh, whether you, whether, whether you're, whether you're born with privileges and, you know, you're sort of born on third base or whether you're so far behind the eight ball that you haven't even gotten out the dugout and gotten out the bat yet. Nevertheless, happiness means that you work and live in a political society which allows you to get around all the base paths, that there's no artificial let or hindrance to you doing that. So 
happiness for Lincoln means access to self-transformation, making, being able to make more of you have a right to make more of yourself than what you started out as being. And of course, for Lincoln, Lincoln himself was his own best example of that because he had started out very, very far behind the eight ball. Uh, and what had he become uh, by the time he's elected president? He's a very successful lawyer, very prominent political person. He can become president of the United States. And for him, that says self-transformation is one of the great gifts that you find described here in the declaration, but it's also a natural right. And any society which is dedicated to the idea of natural rights will recognize that openness, that fluidity, that opportunity for self-transformation. Now, beyond that, I will plead to being a history person <laughs> and not a political philosopher. I, I hang out with a lot of political philosophers and political scientists. And, and sometimes it seems to me that they are really, they're speaking in an entire differently, entirely different language stem. Um, I, it's, those are the moments when I feel like I'm just the hard nosed Joe Friday detective asking what the facts are. Um, but I think there are some directions that are available in the number and a number of writings on this subject that I would refer people to. Uh, I think of Jay Budashit, if I, I'm hoping I pronounce his name correctly, because I've never actually met him. I'd love to, but I haven't met him. Uh, Budge, Bud Zuzewski, I think I got that right. Jay Bud Zuzewski, a book he wrote in 2003, What We Can't Not Know. Mm. And then another book that he followed that up with called The Line Through the Heart in 2009. In both of those books, uh, Bud Zuzewski, I hope I got it right. <laughs> he lays out some other directions that will help us to understand what other elements of natural right belong under that umbrella. I refer people also to our, our great friend, uh, Robert George in his book, In Defense of Natural Law yeah. from 1999. I refer to the writings of Germain Griset, uh, the, the French born natural law philosopher who taught for many years Curiously enough, and I'll put this in as a footnote, he taught for many years at Mount St. Mary's College while I was teaching only about 15 miles up the road at Gettysburg College. And it gives you one idea of how far removed the worlds of political philosophy and history are that I never crossed paths with Sherman <laughs> Grisey. And, I, and now that he has um, uh, moved on, so to speak, uh, I'll never have the opportunity uh, in this life to do that. Uh, I... I regret that. I think we could have had some real fun. But uh, Griset, um, Robert George, John Finnis, uh, in John Finnis's book, Natural Law and Natural Rights in 1980, which is the book that I think in, in many respects really stands at the head of the resuscitation of natural law, political philosophy mm -hmm. in our times. I'd refer people to those kinds of writings. Uh, to discover more on the subject of how we understand what Jefferson was referring to when he said that these rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are among those inalienable rights. If we want to pick up the trail of those other inalienable rights, uh, I, as a non-political philosopher, 
will point people to some of those writings. And uh, that will be a voyage of discovery for us all. We have time for one last question. So I'm going to ask it. In some ways, one of the most important questions we've covered today, and that is what does or what should the Declaration of Independence mean to us today? Let me answer that very briefly. Exactly what it meant in 1776. Hmm. The preamble to the Declaration of Independence doesn't have an unclear word in it. Yeah. It has words which are complicated, like what is the meaning of happiness or the pursuit of happiness? There's, there's, there, there are words there that have long histories, long trails, and long definitions, but there's not a single one of them which isn't clear. And when we ask what the Declaration means today, it means today what it meant in 1776. Why? Because when you are addressing matters of natural law and natural right, you're addressing bedrock realities of human nature that do not change. Whether it's, whether it's fifth century Athens or 21st century America, human nature does not change. As the great Roman poet Horace wrote, you can drive nature out with a pitchfork, but it will return. Yeah. And human nature is like that. And fundamentally, the instincts that people uh, govern their conduct by are not really all that, it's a, not all that different. I mean, this is why you can pick up the Bible, for instance. This is why you can pick up the book of Proverbs. You read in the book of Proverbs and everything in it makes perfect sense today. Yeah. Why? Because what it's addressing is addressing human nature mm. and human nature itself does not change. Human circumstances, human vocabulary, human assumptions, human culture, they change. Those are malleable, but human nature itself is not. So what does the Declaration of Independence mean to us today? Just what it meant in 1776. And it means, I think, over all other things, it means two, th two particular things. First of all, it means natural rights possessed equally. Natural rights, not the gift of government, but endowed by our creator. Secondly, sovereignty. Hmm. Sovereignty in the people the power that the people have to change their government when they conclude that it's necessary to do so, but above all, the competence of the people to govern themselves. This is, this is one of the great questions about the location of sovereignty. When you locate sovereignty in the people, you are, so to speak, taking a big chance on human nature. Yeah. And that chance is to say, are human beings really capable of, of governing themselves? Or are they really, for the most part, a collection of incompetent infants who need someone who is booted and spurred and trained to ride them? Thomas Jefferson, in one of the last things he wrote before his death in 1826, said that what the American experiment had demonstrated was that individual people are capable of governing their own affairs. They're competent to govern their own affairs and are not born to be ridden on their backs by aristocrats. Mm. Jefferson thought that that was true in 1826 fully as much as it had been true 50 years before. And Lincoln would subscribe to exactly the same proposition 
And so would I, and so I believe should all Americans today. Those things have not changed. The Declaration still speaks to us today. It speaks a word of assurance. It speaks a word of defiance. It speaks a word of confidence. Mm -hmm. Confidence in our past, our present, and in our future. Well, amen to all of that. Our guest today has been Dr. Alan C. Gelzo. I do not think there is anyone better that we could have had this conversation with as we celebrate Independence Day. Dr. Gelzo, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. You're very welcome, Nino, and I'm very glad to be able to celebrate with you that sacred day, the 4th of July. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. I think you'll agree there's no better way to celebrate the 4th than to hear from and learn from Alan Gelza. It's always a treat to have him with us, and especially as we celebrate the birth of this great nation. Now, before we bring things to a close, I'm afraid I have to admit, though this will come as no surprise at all to any math teacher of mine, that my math was not right. That most famous sentence of the Declaration, in fact, takes up a little more than 2% of the document, and not, as I said, only 1%. So mea culpa, and I promise not to do any more math on this show. So with that, we'll bring this special Independence Day episode to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Madison's Notes, and may God bless America. <laughs>